Let's pray together. Father, we're going to talk about the heart of our faith this morning. and We just pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Glad you're with us this morning. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're connecting with us this morning. Again, as Jordan said earlier, this is uh, kind of an R-rated sermon, and it's going to be a little bit graphic. We're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, and it was pretty tough stuff. So if you've got a little kid, we've got some great kids' programs outside these doors. Here goes. Bottom line, guys, if Jesus came to be a miracle worker, he was only marginally successful, right? I know Jesus had incredible power, it seems. He healed the sick without any fancy rituals or meds. He'd just touch them and say something like, be healed, and they were. And he cast out demons, and he didn't need holy water or cross or any fancy words. He'd just say something like, get out, and they got out it seems. He'd tell a storm to hush, and it would, like that. Even raise dead people back to life. But, but people still got sick. Demons still tormented people. Storms kept coming back. Most people in his world stayed dead for a while. Bottom line, if Jesus was a miracle worker, he was only marginally successful, right? I mean, all of those problems are still here. But maybe Jesus didn't come to heal our bodies, eliminate demons, calm storms, and stop funerals. Maybe he only did enough of that stuff to show us that he could and someday would. Bottom line, if Jesus came to be a great teacher... He was only marginally successful, right? I know he taught incredible things with incredible authority, blew their minds. He taught people how to love God and how to love each other. He had this way of setting people straight and still convincing them that he loved them completely. 100% truth, 100% grace at the same time. It was mind-blowing.
how they crucified. Sometimes they would just impale a person on a sharpened post. Some they would nail, some they would tie. One historian describes what he saw. He says, I see crosses there, not of one kind, but made in many different ways. Some of their victims with head down to the ground, some impale their private parts, others stretch out their arms. But it seems like crucifixion was kind of perfected by the Romans. It wasn't really outlawed until the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. Now the Romans reserved crucifixion for only the very worst of the worst because it was considered the very worst death possible. In fact, one of the Roman philosophers by the name of Cicero, you probably heard his name, he described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment, suggested that the very mention of a cross should be as far removed from the Roman citizen's body but also his mind and his eyes and his ears. Don't talk about it, don't even think about it, he says. Jewish historian by the name of Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. In fact, in the Bible, they considered a man who was nailed or tied or hung from a tree to be cursed by God. Have you ever used the word excruciating? It means extreme pain, unbearable agonizing, torturous pain, literally excrucis, out of the cross, excruciating. Now the Romans would often whip a man first. Scourging is actually a better word. They'd strip a man naked and tie him to a post with his hands above his head. Then they would use their own version of a cat of nine tails, a whip with several leather cords, and onto these cords it would braid pieces of metal or stone or bone or glass. And they would whip a man's shoulders, his back, his buttocks, and his legs. The larger pieces of stone or bone would tenderize the body, kind of like a chef would tenderize a steak. Sharper pieces of glass or metal would cut and tear and rip. If they weren't careful, the scourging would kill the man, but they didn't want Jesus dead yet. Then we're told that they pounded a crown of thorns onto Jesus' head as part of the mockery. We're not talking about little thorns like a blackberry bush or a rose. Think something more like our locust or hedge apple. So now his head is a bloody mess too. And despite the fact that Jesus was relatively young and stout, the beatings and the blood loss left him unable to carry the crossbar to the place of execution. The crossbar itself would probably have been about 100 pounds, rough-hewn wood laid across his shoulders. They had to volunteer another to help him carry it. When he got to the place of execution, the Bible doesn't list this detail, but it's possible they might have torn out his beard as a sign of disrespect, humiliating him in front of whatever family or friends might dare to be there. Now they would usually crucify a man in a very public place, kind of like at the entrance to Kroger or Walmart, because they wanted people to see. You see, crucifixion wasn't just about killing a man, it was about his total humiliation and shame. It was about terrifying anybody else who might dare commit the same crimes. They'd lay him across a cross and take nails, something like this. You probably found a nail in your chair. It's called a masonry nail. 
think something like this, but only about that long, five, seven inches maybe. They probably wouldn't have nailed him through the palm as Jesus would have hung and twisted on the cross that might have torn through the fingers. So probably they found that little place between the bones and the wrist and nailed right there. A lot of nerves there, but no arteries. Then they would drive other nails to either the top of his feet or the side of his feet as they affixed it to the cross. And then they would lift the cross and drop the cross into the hole, jarring the body, and the pain would be excruciating. What a way for a so-called God to die, right? There's actually a piece of graffiti. This graffiti was discovered in Rome about 200. It dates from about 200 AD, and it mocks the crucifixion of Jesus, and it mocks a Jesus follower. It pictures the head of a man, the head of a jackass, on a cross, and the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. What a fool they were trying to say. And the Apostle Paul actually said, we preach Christ crucified. The Jews are offended, no kidding. The Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Jesus hung there on the cross naked, unable to tend his waists. He would have been so overwhelmed by the physical pain that he was likely incontinent, unable to fend off the insects that would have been drawn to him like honey. So, so a pool, pool of blood, blood and sweat, sweat urine, and feces, feces would, would gradually collect, collect the, the foot of the cross. Most, Most of, of our pictures of crucifixion are way too tame. tame. Depending, Depending on, on how weakened the man was prior to his crucifixion, those on the, on the cross, cross could actually last, last for days. The problem would be breathing. Jesus would struggle to breathe. Just hanging there would make it too difficult. He'd have to pull himself up against the nails or push himself up against the nails in his feet in order to take in enough oxygen and expel enough carbon dioxide. But they needed Jesus dead before the sun went down because when the sun went down, it was going to be Passover and they didn't want his dead body or his body hanging there on their holy day. So they broke the legs of the other two who were crucified with him so they couldn't push themselves up to breathe. Jesus, they found, already dead. So they plunged a spear into his side, into the cavity around his heart just to make sure. And blood and water flowed. Some have thought stupidly that Jesus was just almost dead. So when they laid him on a cold stone on his tomb, he revived without any food, water, or medical care. Jesus just got better, they figure. Then he rolled away a massive stone all by himself and either overpowered or eluded the guards. Yeah, right. Takes way too much faith to believe something like that. Jesus died on a cross. He died the most miserable death we could concoct. That is the heart of the good news, right? We Jesus followers call that good news. How macabre is that? How ghoulish, how sadistic is that? Good news. 
Greatest news ever. They crucified Jesus in your place. In your place. One famous philosopher said, if Socrates lived and died like a philosopher, he drank poison. Jesus lived and died like a god, whatever that means. Gandhi put it like this, Jesus' death on a cross was a great example to the world. Of what? But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart cannot accept. And if that's so, Jesus was a fool. And we are doomed. Mark Twain put it like this. He says, Jesus died to save men, a small thing for an immortal to do. Really? And he didn't save many anyway, but if Jesus had been damned for the race, that would have been an act of a size proper to a god. It would have saved the whole race. Friedrich Nietzsche said, Jesus died too soon. If he'd lived to be my age, he would have repudiated his doctrine and we'd be hosed. The apostle Peter, the same guy who betrayed Jesus three times the night he was be, the, the night before he was crucified, the same guy who ran and hid as Jesus died, Peter said this. Peter said Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. He personally carried my sins in his body on the cross. So we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. And guys, if that is so, then it is the gospel, the good news, the greatest news imaginable. Now, we're not done yet. We really haven't gotten to the why yet. But let's just honor our God for what he's done for us, and let's give him the gratitude that he deserves. Let's sing together. Hallelujah, praise.
always been the plan. This has always been the plan, this great exchange. And even though we talk about it being good news, it doesn't seem like it all the time. This Isaiah 53 passage is really emotional sometimes for me to be able to read because of what it is that I did to put Jesus Christ on a cross. And this whole thing about him years before he even came to this earth, knowing that this was the plan, it just strikes me every time I read it. It says this, this Jesus, the servant, grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant, and a parched field, and there was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on, passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing. We've gone our own way. And God has piled all of our sins, everything that we've done wrong, on him. On him. He was beaten. He was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare. Beaten bloody for the sins of my people, they buried him with the wicked. They threw him into a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper and flourish. So that's the good news. Jesus died on a cross in your place. In your place. That makes it the best news ever imaginable. You know why? Let me show you. Number one, God is holy. God is holy. 
God is called holy more than any other descriptor in the scriptures. Called holy hundreds of times. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there's the scene in which the angels surround the throne of God and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which means he is the one who is absolutely pure, perfect, perfectly good, unstained by any evil or sin. Only God is perfectly holy. Some people think if God is so holy, why would he create anything as messy as us, as our world? Well, we'll get there. Number two, God made us to be holy too. He made you to be holy. Not quite like God is. He gave us the ability to choose good. The Bible says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created us. When God finished creating us, he looks and says, this is very good. You are very good. But because we were made in God's image, we can choose. We can choose good or not. It's our choice. We can choose to do life with God, for God, God's way, or not. Bottom line, we chose and we choose badly. It's what we call sin. Sin destroys the life God meant us to live. Sin destroys the people God meant us to love on. And all of us sin a lot. Number three, we choose sin a lot. All of us violate the holiness of God. All of us violate the holiness of God. He created us for a lot by propensity and by choice. And we know it. We admit it. We say things like, but I'm only human, right? Because every human being that you know sins a lot. We say things like, nobody's perfect. Because we admit it. We know we choose sin a lot. Everyone has sinned, the Bible says. Every one of us falls short of God's glorious standards. No kidding, you're not the exception, I'm not the exception. None of us are. Think about it. When you realize that there are sins of omission and sins of commission, we sin when we don't do the things we should, and we sin when we do do the things we shouldn't, right? A lot. And all of us should admit how deep it goes, especially when we understand that sin isn't just about the things that we do, it's about the things we think, too. You may not admit how serious your sin is, but if you're anything close to self-aware and ruthlessly honest, you know it's true. All of us are sinners. All of us violate God's standards, the holiness he created us for. No exceptions, except one. One exception, Jesus was sinless. Number four, we covered this stuff three weeks ago. In the history of the world, no one, no human has ever claimed with any credibility that they are without sin. In other words, that their words, their actions, their thoughts, and their motivations are always perfect, always pure. Even the greatest religious teachers of all time admit that they're sinners, except Jesus. Jesus calls on others to repent, Jesus gets tempted to sin, but he actually says this. He says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin, any sin? Did you say something like that? Can anybody you know? And those who were closest to him, those who knew him best, believed him. They bought it. 
Here's the Apostle John, who may have been the disciple who was closest to Jesus. Jesus, John says, there is no sin in him, none. Closest friend, no sin in him. Apostle Peter is number one student. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin. No one has ever heard a lie come from his lips. Ever. Book of Hebrews. Jesus faced all of the same testings, all the same temptations that we do, but he didn't sin. We do, he didn't ever. All of those who were closest to him, all of those who knew him best, bought it. His family, his friends, they bought it. His enemies couldn't prove otherwise. Do you have any evidence they're wrong? Do you know why we think that that is credible? Because he's not just a man, he's God. God is holy. He claimed to be God, the holy God, the creator God, in a bod. They believed him and we believe him. And if you want to know why we believe him, come back next week. But here it is, listen. If this is true, they crucified an innocent man. The only innocent man ever. Well, actually, they didn't kill him. No man can kill God, but God can choose to die. Here's the way Jesus put it. Jesus says, no one takes my life away from me. No man can. I give it up on my own free will. I have the right to give it up. I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father has commanded me to do. And that's what I'm doing. So why would he do that? Why would he give up his life out of his own free will? Here it is, guys. Here it is. This may be the most shocking thing that I say today, but here it is, number six. Even though Jesus was sinless, Jesus became our sin. He became our sin. I didn't say Jesus sinned. I said he became our sin. Does that make no sense to you? Blow your mind? Well, here it is. On the cross, in our place, Jesus became the worst of what we are. He became our sin. One pastor, one pastor put it like this. He said, in the moment when Jesus cried out that he'd been forsaken by God the Father, Jesus became the most ugly, wicked, defiled, evil, corrupt, rebellious, and hideous thing in all creation. In that moment, Jesus became a homosexual, an alcoholic, a thief, a glutton, an addict, a pervert, an adulterer, a coveter, an idol worshiper, a whore, a pedophile, a self-righteous religious prig, whatever else we are. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Jesus exchanged his perfection for our imperfection. He exchanged his intimacy with God for our distance from God. He exchanged his blessing for our cursing, his life for our death. As Steve indicated, 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, the prophet Isaiah told us exactly what Jesus would do. He says it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God. No. We thought that they were a punishment for his sins. No. 
He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was whipped so we could be made whole. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. But the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. And if that is true, guys, if that is true, this is the best news ever. Greatest news ever. Not just that they crucified Jesus, crucified a perfect man, crucified God. But that it's in our place for our benefit. Because for some crazy reason, our God still loves us and he wants us back. So he took the punishment for the sins, the punishment we deserved, so we wouldn't have to. There's a little tiny word that is so powerful, so powerful. It's the word for. You ready? Prophet Isaiah said he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be holy. He was whipped so we could be healed. The Apostle Paul, who started out murdering Jesus' followers, Paul said this. He said he was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Thank God. The same Paul who called himself the greatest sinner of all time. Paul says God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For you. Apostle Peter, the one who denied Jesus and ran. Peter said Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners like us to bring us safely home to God. And if that's so, if that's what he did, this is the best news ever for everyone. Apostle John, who maybe knew Jesus best, put it like this. He said, he himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Gospel. Good news. Greatest news ever. And I know it sounds macabre and ghoulish and sadistic at first. They killed Jesus. <clears throat> nah. We killed Jesus. Nah. God sent his son to die. Jesus embraced the cross for us. Maybe you think God's kind of overreacting to our sin. Well, sin isn't that bad, is it? We're not that bad. Sin isn't that dangerous, is it? Well, God doesn't agree. Someday you'll understand why. Others are like, well, this is so grotesque. I thought following Jesus was all about love and peace and all that stuff. To put an incredibly brutal death at the center of it all, it's too archaic, too gross, too violent, too bloody. This isn't the Sunday school Jesus you grew up with. Maybe it's the real Jesus. Because maybe this is about real life and real death for all of us. And you can feel its power. Can't you? 
you can feel its power, the power of his sacrifice for you. In fact, that's why so many of our greatest stories move us the way that they do, because they are echoes of our story. William Wallace, giving his life to win the freedom of his people. Walt Kowalski, giving his life to win the freedom of the Asian kids that he had come to love. Even Superman, giving his life for a people not quite his own, but for whom he loved. Captain Miller, giving his life for a private Ryan. Aslan. Trading his life for a despicable little kid named Edmund. And as he lay there on a stone table waiting for the white witch to plung a, plunge a knife into his heart, the theater grows quiet. We grow quiet. Because everyone knows this is a crazy trade. And everyone knows that Aslan could have simply walked away or he simply could have crushed everybody in the room, but he just lays there for us. Maybe you're thinking that God could have found a different way. Maybe. We have an infinitely creative God. But this is the way he chose. The way he chose to show the seriousness of our sin and to prove the incredible love and grace that he has for us anyway. A father or a creator dying for his creation? Kind of. more like a father dying for his kids. And that's the good news. Guys, since the birth of the church, we Jesus followers have practiced two sacraments, two sacred acts, both of which retell the story of the cross. The first sacrament we call baptism. When a man or a woman or a child is baptized, becomes a Jesus follower, they're acting out the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We die with Christ. We're buried with Christ as we plunge underneath the water. And the great exchange takes place. His death becomes our death. His life becomes ours. We are raised to a brand new life. And there may be people in this room right now who need to start there. It starts brand new life, the life that you were created for. And if that's where you are, then either during this service, the next song, or after the service, I'm going to hang around up here, or after the second service in our connection Zoom, we're going to talk about what it means to start a new life with Christ. I need to talk to you. Let's get right with God. The gospel is for you. The second sacrament we call the Lord's Supper. Every week, every Sunday for 2,000 years, we Jesus followers have, have celebrated this Lord's Supper together. We take a little piece of bread which represents the body of Jesus broken on a cross. We take a little spot of juice which represents the blood of Jesus that flowed to cover our sins. And every week, we eat this sacred meal to remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news, the best news ever and we give him thanks. It's a service of gratitude. Let's pray together. Father, for your grace, we give you thanks for the sacrifice.